Somebody's going to be missing this. I have it, Melissa. For a mere fee of $20. As we dig deeper into Romans chapter 8, we continue in our study of um, this series of transforming faith into freedom. And that the freedom we were supposed to live in, we are called by God to live in this freedom. And um, we talked last week about this life of the Exodus, that we are living as people of the Exodus even unto this day, and that that life has certain characteristics to it like abundance and joy and and faithfulness, and, and there's all sorts of adjectives that describe this life. And Paul's going to continue on, though, uh, unveiling that because we live this life of Exodus, uh, leaving, and I'm going to go into that just a little bit deeper here in a minute, but but leaving from the slavery of the world and leaving from the trappings of the world as we move to that more beautiful promised land, the new Jerusalem and the new heaven, that uh, we are characterized by those who are the birth pangs of this new creation, that we literally live as, as, as people who are in labor pains amongst a world in the pain of labor giving birth to this new creation. So let us pick up reading with Romans chapter 8. We're going to begin with verse 17 and uh, read through uh, 26. Um, Paul continues on in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and says that if we are children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. That the creation itself would be set free from the bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole of creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of the sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. And likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the hearts knows what's the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Let us pray. Most precious, gracious, and merciful, and holy God, we thank You for Your Word this morning. We thank You, Lord, that You have not left us as orphans, but that we truly are adopted as Your sons and Your daughters and Even the struggles of life are the signs, O God, that we belong to You. Lord, help us to hear this morning 
with ears that are deeply hungered for spiritual feeding. Help us to see, Lord, with eyes that have been redeemed in Christ, that we might know His glory. And Lord, let let the Spirit unveil to us what we have been called to be as a people of the Exodus, a people who are moving towards home, that we might bring You glory, O God, in the way that we live our lives, that we might bring You glory, Lord, in the way that we expect for our future. And that we might bring you glory, O Lord, in the way that we suffer for and in the name of Christ. We praise you, O God, for who you are. And we thank you for your word. Forgive my sins, O God, that I may preach your word. And may your strength be shown in my weakness. We ask this in your name, Lord Jesus, for your glory's sake. Amen. Started around 7.30 in the night. September the 13th, 1980. She came to me and said, I'm starting to have stomach pains. And I said, well, you've had them before. And you remember it was false labor. She said, this time it's different. And then she went into detail to explain how it was different. And I went into panic. At those days, I drove a Datsun 210. Some of you may remember the tin can that they called a car. And I grinded all the gears on the way from Lakewood into the Baptist Hospital in downtown Jacksonville, Florida, hitting every pothole I could possibly hit on purpose to make sure that this was not going to be false labor. We got there to the hospital and the nurse said, Oh my word, you're already ready. And I looked and with a big grin on my face and said, I helped. (laughs) And then a few hours of watching and waiting and extreme contractions, we might say, began to happen. And I'm, I'm praying no one's pregnant out there right now because I don't want to scare you. You might as well know the truth. And it went on for hours and hours and hours. And finally the doctor came to me and said, I think we're going to have to take the baby with a C-section. And I said, well, uh, okay. And he said, well, what do you think? I think we paid you a lot of money and you went to medical school and this is a decision that you should make and not me. Well, I think we should take it. All right. And that was the night before on September the 14th, the birth of our first child, Henry. Some of you have met. All that was fairly normal and fairly consistent with childbirth. But what struck me was two days afterwards when Lee was in the hospital room holding him and mothering him and looks at me and goes, I want to do it again. I thought, honey, you're insane. Why would we ever do that again? 
And she held him up. She looked at me with this curious look. She said, look at this little life. It was worth it. In some ways, that's what Paul is telling us in these scriptures. We struggle. And this life has a lot of struggles in it. And Paul is specifically telling us who follow Christ. It's bringing you life. And it's bringing you new life. And the pain is worth the prize. And because we're people of the Exodus, and I think it's, it's a, a thing we've often forgotten, and it's so easy to forget, but we must remember, we must recall, we are not made for here. And most of us, many of us, including myself, oftentimes spend a lot of my time and a lot of my life trying to rebuild Eden. And not recalling and not remembering that I've been cast out of Eden And there's been a sword that's been placed in between the gates of Eden and me that I can never return to. But the gospel tells me there's a place that God has redeemed us to that's even better than Eden. And that's where we're to go. And that's where we're to be heading all of the time. That we're not to try to rebuild Eden here but we're to try to live for the glory that is coming to us there in this new Jerusalem that God is going to deliver into the hands of God's people. And we are merely characters and carriers of this message and this gospel to the world. And because we are His, we face struggles, we face harm, and we face things in this life from both the supernatural and a natural attack. But we must never forget that these supernatural realities of attack and a natural realities of attack are only leading us to an eternal reality of a blessed adoption and pleasure. When Paul writes in the 17th verse of this 8th chapter, he says, if we're children, this is where we ended last week, if we're children, then we're heirs. And he sees the connection between there's no way that God could call us children and at the same time bifurcate us out from being heirs of all that belongs to Christ. That there's an objective truth, there's an inextricable connection between the idea of God calling us sons and daughters and God also delivering to us all that belongs to His sons and His daughters. Paul elsewhere says, "If, if He gave Christ for your sake, and for mine, how, excuse me, how will He not give us all things together with Christ? But there's a provisio to it. There's a, there's a condition to it. I, I kind of sometimes wince when we say that God is unconditional with us because He's really not. There's a provision here in this promise that you and I are heirs. There's a provision here that we are co-heirs with Christ. And the provision is this that we suffer with Him, with Christ, in order that we will also be glorified with Him. If 
We should be honest when people become Christians. We're not calling them into relief, but we're calling them into redemption. That we don't have a 10-step plan to make your life here on earth better. We don't have a five-step plan to help you rebuild Eden. We don't even have a three-step plan to keep you protected from every disease or harm that would come into this world. But what we have is a message of the redemption of Christ, that there's a better world to come of which we are headed for. And you are welcome to join us. Many of us look at Christianity as the idea of relief more than redemption. I liken it to when Lee is angry with me. My wife might get angry with me. I know it's hard to believe, but every once in a while she does. Mostly because she's a saint. And I was sent here to sanctify her. But oftentimes I'll say, I'm sorry. Hoping that that's enough. Because I really want to get back to the game. And don't you see in that moment, I'm really looking for relief. I'm not looking for redemption. I'm really not looking to restore the relationship or to even live in the relationship. I'm looking just for whatever is in conflict to get it out of my life so I can go back to my selfish way of living. But how unfortunate that we also live that way with God as Christians, as His people. When we tell God that we're sorry, we tell God, forgive us, because we have an expectation of relief more than we do, God, show me redemption. Show me what it looks like to become more like your son, Jesus. Show me what it looks like for that which causes me suffering to become the lashes upon his back. That I might look more like him and thereby bring glory to him with my life. Paul says, unless that's our attitude, unless our heart is to suffer with Christ and because of Christ, that is what joins us to the day where we will also be glorified with Christ. And if that was the only message that we have, it probably wouldn't build too many churches, would it? Probably, probably you would find more people flee. And I've often said that Jesus wasn't the greatest church builder in the world by the American standards of what builds churches. He didn't offer anyone physical comfort. Physical safety. In fact, he offered completely the different, didn't he? You will suffer for my namesake. Some will even throw you out of the temple thinking they're doing service to God. They'll want to get rid of you. The more that you understand the gospel and the more you're in the gospel, the more the religious people will want to get you out of their religious organizations. Blessed are you when you are persecuted for my namesake. Sell all that you have and follow me. Not necessarily the words you find on church building classes and schools that you might go to in any modern denomination of how to plant and build a church. 
But there's another message that we often miss in this, and it's in verse 1, I'm sorry, 18. When Paul says, For I consider the sufferings of this present time not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. And so Paul says there's a pain that we have in the union with Christ. But that pain that we have in our union with Christ is in the context of the glory that we have with Christ as well. That the pain has a purpose. The pain has a reason that we experience it. And and part of that is certainly because we belong to Christ, because we're in union with Jesus. Don't you know and don't you recall the words of our Master that says, if you love me, the world will hate you. But fear not, because I've overcome the world. Now, how do our lives in context fit with Jesus' description of how that life looks like? Are our, our schedules busy with the idea of how to insulate ourselves from the world more than expose ourselves to the world that we might suffer in Christ, knowing the glory of Christ that is to come. It sounds insane, I know. From a human perspective, from a self-protection perspective, it's insane to live that way. But it's the way we've been called to live as those who are members of the Exodus. Because this is not our home. And because we are united with Christ, we live in the context, our glory is not here. But our glory is to come when Christ returns and we are revealed with Him to be the sons and the daughters of Christ. What is it that you are living for? Who is it that you're living for? Why are you going to college? Why are you going to continuing education? Why are you striving so hard in your careers? What are your goals in life and who or what are they about other than Christ? Now, if you're an unbeliever this morning or you're a skeptic that's with us, it sounds crazy to you, I know, but I've got to tell you the truth. You're wrong in the way that you think. And the way that you think is going to take you to hell. There is no glory waiting you, waiting for you. There is only damnation. And those of you who claim to belong to Christ, we can no longer live like the world lives, but we must live in the way that Christ has called us to live. And the things of Christ must consume us. They must compel us. They must drive us to in every decision that we make in life. We have no business making any decisions from the wisdom of the world before it goes through the wisdom of God's Word. And yes, there will be struggles in living by God's Word. There may even be, from the world's appearance, failure if we live by God's Word. There may be ridicule, there may be suffering, there may be persecution. There may be complete and utter chaos because of the world's point of view. 
But in Christ, we understand that living by his word and the principles of his word and the wisdom of his word is what's driving us to be revealed as the sons and daughters of God. And it's the purpose to reveal that to this world so we can proclaim the gospel to this world and know the ultimate freedom of our bodies being released from this corruption, waiting to be clothed with the incorruptible. It's a supernatural reality that we live in that we who are in Christ will always be attacked by the spiritual complexities and kingdoms and and thrones of the uh, world we cannot see. You remember Paul in Ephesians 6 tells us that our battle is not against flesh and blood. Who is our battle against? That there's a reality of a supernatural world that wants us to live like the world. And it's always whispering in our ear, live like the world, live like the world, do what the world does, handle it the way the world handles it. Your marriages, they should look like the world's marriages. Your finances look like the world's finances. Your wisdom looks like the world's wisdom. Don't you hear? That's what the spirits of the underworld, those who are anti-Christ, that's what whispers in our ears all the time. It's on every commercial. It's in every TV show. It's even in our churches amongst this country of this prosperity gospel that you were meant to live here. Nothing could be further from biblical truth. You are not meant to live here. You are meant to pass through here. Leaving drops of grace and gospel all along the way for the glory of Christ until your ultimate and my ultimate freedom. Because it reveals to the pain of our present condition a natural reality Because of the life of Exodus, Paul says that we are to live with humility and with hope. Verse 21, he says, The creation itself will be set free from this bondage to corruption and obtain freedom of the glory of the children of God. We know that the whole of creation has been groaning together with the pains of childbirth until now. We live in a natural reality that is anti-Christ. Oswald Chambers used to have a great line that I've always hung on to. If you want to do the things of Christ, the world will love you. If you want to be like Christ, be careful, the world will crucify you. As long as we're nice, Pollyanna people that sit in our corner and do our little thing on Sunday mornings, everything should be fine. But it's when the church becomes militantly faithful to the Word of God and becomes warriors for the kingdom of heaven and those who carry the saber of the light of the world and the truth of His Scripture, you can count on real and true persecution coming to you from the world. Stand against abortion. Stand against Sexual fidelity. 
stand against the craziness of this world that is rapidly and increasingly like centrifugal force going down the toilet all the way to hell. Stand against it and you will be persecuted by the world. And the simple reason it shouldn't mystify us is because they know they're dying. And they know you're alive. And the world has to hate you. Not only does the spiritual world hate you, but the natural world hates you. Oh, they may be polite. They may even be people you have dinner with and and like to have a sandwich with every once in a while. But if they don't belong to Christ, they have no other option but to hate Christ. They don't think he's a nice guy, a good teacher. If that's all they think of Christ, it's the spirit of the Antichrist. Those are the people that we're to be spreading the seeds of the gospel to. But don't be surprised when it's rejected and you're persecuted for it. Because the truth of the matter is, the world hates the gospel. But it's in that hatred, and it's in that resistance, that you and I learn humility. And Paul says, it's in that, or in this hope, that we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for hope, who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with patience. Paul says it's in that persecution that hope reveals itself. <coughs> and hope manifests itself in patiently waiting. Some of you remember when Wendy's hamburgers first came out, they had a 30-second rule that if you, couldn't, if you could get through their drive through in more than 30 seconds, they would give you your, your hamburger free. They've gotten away from that apparently, but there used to be a little stopwatch right there, and my roommate, who was known to peel an orange in his pocket, he was so cheap, he would go to Wendy's almost every meal and just stare at that clock waiting. And I mean, he had, he had a stopwatch in his car, and if it was one millisecond beyond that 30, it could be 30.1 seconds. And he was going to argue for that burger to be free. But I'm afraid our patience has gotten even worse than that. How often do we find comfort in waiting upon the Lord? How well are we known for the way that we understand God is working even when we don't understand how He's working to the point that we're able to be patient. The negative side of that would be how quick are we to criticize and be critical when God's not doing what we think God should be doing. Instead of a people that are waiting who believe that God will do what God promised He would do no matter what. I wonder today how many of us would be willing to go into the fire and wait upon the Lord to show up.
I wonder how many of us would say, even if He doesn't show up, our God is still God. Our hearts have grown so impatient. And because we're impatient, don't you understand the reverse of that? We lose hope. And when we lose hope, we revert back to the world. We do it quickly. We do it rapidly. But we do it nonetheless. But when we realize I have a whole supernatural realm that's against me, that hates me, and hates who I belong to. They hate that I'm united with Christ. And I have a natural world that hates the way I live, that hates what I believe in, that stands contrary to everything that the Scripture holds fast to. And that that is my one singular hope. And I'm willing to wait patiently in persecution, in trial, in disease, in famine, in comfort, out of comfort, to see what God will do that I might bring Him glory in the way that I follow Him in faithfulness. That the fruit of patience and perseverance would reveal the hope that belongs to me and you in Christ Jesus to the world. Arthur Pink said this, Let not Christians be moved from a patient continuance in well-doing because of harsh criticism from those who don't understand. The world doesn't understand you. And until Christ takes the scale off of their eyes, they're never going to understand you. And if your hope and my hope is placed in their understanding of us, patience will soon turn and we will lose our hope. But if our hope is centered on Christ and we understand we're a people of the Exodus that are moving forward, then our hope increases in spite of any criticism that we might have because we understand This last point this morning, the pleasure of our blessed adoption, the eternal reality in which we live. 26, Paul says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know to pray as we ought, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the heart knows the mind of the Spirit. Because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Astonishing verses. Because of the implication that is bold and right there on the surface is this. You can't even pray wrong. That God is so within us and God is so for us that you can't even mess up your own prayers. Don't you see that the Spirit intercedes on your behalf translating what our spirits should be saying into what is being said into the ear of the Father. So when I have a prayer like, Lord, I just want six lucky numbers. That probably gets translated into something like, 
I know what it is to have plenty and I know what it is to have one. I've learned the secret of being content. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. Yes, Father, praise your name. Lord, if you could just make my physical turn out the way that I wanted it to turn out. May get translated into, in my weakness, he will show his strength. But don't you see the freedom that we're being asked to live in, in the, in the, in the eternal perspective of things, that we are to cast our anxieties upon God. We are to be honest with God. We are to say, God, here's what I think I want. Here's what I think I need. But we also, in the context of that, have this incredible security to know that God's going to turn that into what we really need. Because we live in this eternal security of being his sons and his daughters. And that our good, good father is going to translate everything into what is good for us and makes us look like Christ. But there's an implication in this that I I think is so important for us to hang on to today and to close with today. And the implication is this. It's actually not an implication. It's an objective truth. Some of you remember I pointed out to you several times in the 17th chapter of the Gospel of John where Jesus, the Son, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> prays to God the Father. God the Son prays to God the Father. Father, love them exactly how you love me. With the same love, God the Father, that you have for me, God the Son, that's how I would want you to love my people. And don't you see Paul says that prayer is answered right here. That you and I are caught up in the context of a Trinitarian life. That we are always being churned and lavished in the love of God who continually loves us and eternally loves us. And continually and eternally lavishes us, as John would say, in his love. That we're in this great spin cycle of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit always being loved. And that love is the pleasure of our adoption. That love is what brings us our joy, our hope, our strength to live in a world that hates us and against a spiritual world that is determined to keep us down. that calls us to live contrary to Eden, to live contrary to the plains of the Tower of Babel, and to live obediently in the exodus, living in the reality that these things are against us, but never forgetting the reality of who is for us. That's what this meal is. That's what communion is. It is a sign. It is a seal that we are people of the Exodus and we understand that. And so we get morsels. We get a sip and we get morsels here to remember and to recall that there's a great banquet coming. And 
And this is not supposed to be our big meal. It's supposed to be the meal that reminds us of the big meal to come. It's the meal that sustains us for the big meal to come. Not just a memory. It's not some mystic, crazy thing. But it's a spiritual reality that as we eat and we drink, we partake in communion with Christ Himself, longing and looking forward to His wedding banquet to come because we realize this is the meal of the Exodus. That the Passover has been fulfilled and we will be delivered into the promised land by none other than the hand of Christ. Three quick applications. Keep your eye on the prize. Keep looking forward. Understand that this suffering is the engine that drives our patience. And rest in the Sabbath of our God. For in Him is peace. Let's pray.